0: Uh, we begin this morning a uh, 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 three-week series on on the gospel. I'll, I'll sort of define that for you in, the more, in a minute, although it's, it'll be defined a, as we go. Uh, part of the reason for that is that we're launching a new congregation, and it's always an appropriate place to start when you're launching a new congregation. Uh, Ralph Winter, a guy who writes about, about churches, uh, said it like this, he said, the planting of the planting of new churches is the most effective means of evangelism under the sun. Uh, we see it as the means of one of the key means of evangelism in the, in the New Testament and so the hope is as as crosswinds goes to the west side that, that the gospel will be encountered there both through word and, and, and deed and the gospel will be seen from, from scripture, and lives will be transformed by the the amazing works of, of Jesus so we start with the gospel uh, there because we're launching there but we also are, are going to do three weeks in the gospel here because even though the gospel informs everything we do, uh, I hope that we never have a different message. Uh, Sometimes it's appropriate to go back to the basics and remind us uh, all of what we're talking about. Uh, And so this morning we're going to be in Romans chapter 3 and we're going to start in the most. in maybe what some would view as the most basic of places, but I think a wholly appropriate a wholly appropriate place to begin this morning. I would say this: when I use the word gospel, I'm I'm, I'm short-handing something. The word gospel uh, just means good news. When we use good news in the church context, we are referring to all that which is the which is the heart and soul of the church. What makes the church good news. We are referring to the, the actions of, of Jesus Christ and the actions of the Father in rescuing humanity and making things new, but we're going to discuss that as we go. So we're going to be this morning beginning in Romans three twenty three. It says this, for all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him as an atoning sacrifice. In his blood, uh, in his blood received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his restraint God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness as the present time. So that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in in Jesus. So Romans 3.23, the gospel, the gospel should start with God. It does start with God in, in this text. Sometimes when we talk about the good news of Jesus, we, we start uh, elsewhere and we start with us. But the, the good news starts with God. It also starts, unfortunately, here with a bit of bad news. And the bad news is this, is that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of of God, so the beginning of the good news has to do with the glory of God, which is a which is an interesting term in that I feel like it, it's kind of nebulous. What does the glory of God mean, and what does it mean to fall short of the glory of God? My my mind goes immediately to, uh, for instance, the Westminster Confession, which says that the chief end of man is to glorify. God and enjoy him forever. Uh, we sometimes say that we ascribe to a theological position called one-point Calvinism, and that idea is, is this, is that God over and above everything deserves all the glory, and the glory of God is the point of, of existence. In, in this text here, I think both of those ideas are, are, are implied. The idea is, is that humanity, you and I and all of us, fall short of God's glory. We fall short of glorifying God. And the way that we fall short of glorifying God is mentioned there, we sin. The idea here then is that if you begin with God, and this is this is basic to many of you, but if you begin with God, God has attributes and God has characteristics. And one of those characteristics is that he is without sin. He is without blemish. He is Perfection. In fact, it's not even. It's um. It's interesting to say that God is without sin because in in reality He is the one who defines what sin is, and sin becomes any transgression of His will or character. God is, uh, as Scripture says, holy. He is set apart. There is a there is a grandeur and greatness to God that is the ultimate thing in the universe by which everything else ultimately derives. Definition in this text when it says for all who have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, it's saying this is that God sets a standard and you do not meet it. Right? And so, starting with the bad news of the gospel, it is this: you and I sin, we do wrong. All of us do do wrong, we regularly do wrong, we habitually do wrong and we were even born into doing wrong. If you go to the go to the Psalms, uh, David would say in the Psalms, he says I was conceived in sin. And so from our mother's womb, from our from our first breath we begin and live our lives in a way that is contrary to the will of God, contrary to the purposes of God, and contrary to bringing glory to God. We do the opposite of what God wants. We are uncomfortable sometimes saying that uh, that we sin from birth, but I, I think if we're, if we're honest, we, we know this to, to be true. We don't like to hear that, but it is, it is a fact that is we don't have time to go deep into it. But all throughout Scripture, the, the, the teaching is consistent that our first uh, grandparents, Adam and Eve, that in the garden, Eve chose to, uh, uh, Eve was deceived and took the apple from, uh, uh, or the fruit that the, the, the serpent offered to her, contrary to what God had commanded her to do. Adam was there. He also took it in a, and when that happened, sin genetically entered into mankind. You are a descendant of your grandparents, and you, you, you inherit their, not only uh, the, 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 the genetic traits of, of how your hair looks, or what color your eyes are, but also sin enters into mankind genetically through Adam and Eve. You were born Sinful. And I begin with bad news because you can't get to good news, the gospel, which means good news. You do not know why you need a gospel, and you do not know why you need a good news unless you grasp the bad news. And the bad news is, is that you and I fall short of God's glorious, I, glorious ideal. And, and the reason we need to emphasize that it's God's ideal is because a lot of us, me included, would prefer when talking about our sinfulness to compare ourselves to some other human right? So we would look at ourselves and say, well, I may have messed that up, but I am not as bad as that person. I often like to say is that a lot of us like to keep around either in our actual life or in our, in, our, in, our mental, uh, in our mental space. We like to keep around someone we know that messes up more than we do. Because if you keep someone around that messes up more than you do, when you mess up, you can say, well, at least I'm not as bad as Jill, right? I messed this up, but, but look at what Jill did, Right? Jill's the worst, am I right? And we all like to have Jill around because we can blame everything on Jill. If you make Jill the standard, we're not that bad. But the standard here is God's glorious ideal. And if God is the standard, then our sinfulness in compared to his righteousness and his goodness becomes cavernous. It becomes huge. It becomes a giant problem. And so, but I don't want to want to uh theologize or theologicalize that for you too much so that you say well there's this grand cavernous thing and it's just a theological concept. I want you to hear this. The bad news is you were born being an enemy of the living God and you may have not done anything terrible right Well, I'm not as bad as Jill or Hitler. That's the other person we like to compare ourselves to. Well, he's really bad. I'm not as bad. I didn't kill millions and millions of people. No, but you're an enemy of God and you are just as much under condemnation. And one of the things we do is we like to compare our brokenness to another human's brokenness to try and make, it, make us feel better about our brokenness. I say to you this morning, the way to feel better about your brokenness is not to compare it to another human's. We'll talk about how the gospel is the answer to your brokenness, but the first thing you must do is realize you're broken that that your your daily attitudes, the little lies you tell the the, the 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 little bit of 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 influence you allowed into your life that is counter to the way of God, uh, the little uh yelling that you did that you shouldn 't have the the little bit of anger just the the, the minor uh, stealing the 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 minor stuff the 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 laziness uh, 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 your work. Uh, When you're on the job, which steals from your employer, the the way which you knew that, that God had wanted you to get up and serve your wife, and you didn't. The way in which you knew God was telling you to turn off the TV and spend time with your children, and you didn't. These things these things, which are counter to the, to the character of God, and counter to the character of God, uh, not even including the way in which we break every commandment in Scripture regularly, these things have caused a cavern between you and God. The bad news is, for all have sinned. I suppose the only, the only upshot of that is, is that as you look around the building this morning, there is no one here who is not also sinned. The word is all. And so we gather together in the same situation, in the same brokenness, in the, in the same reality. All of us, God is glorious and we do not live up to that glory. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What then? This is where, where the bad news becomes good news. What happens with, with, that, with uh, that, that brokenness? If we were to jump ahead to Romans chapter 6, we would read this For the wages of sin is death. Right? So what happens? In your and mine, not living up to the glory of God, what happens is we are separated from God. We are set apart from God. We cannot draw near to God. Our relationship with God is is broken. Everything is torn asunder. It is torn apart. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, Scripture says. So what then? The answer, the gospel is the answer to that. The answer to all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 6. The wages of falling short of the glory of God is death. What then are we to just die? No, this begins the good news. They, meaning we, are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The word redemption... We'll start at the end of the verse. The word redemption means to redeem, means to purchase back, means to bring back, means to get back. Here was the situation. Again, Romans chapter chapter 6 says this. Do you not know that the one you offer yourself to and serve, you become a slave to that master? And it talks about how all of us, by birth, had been living in a way which we had become slaves to our master, sin. And what sin wanted, we did. And apart from Christ, what sin demands, we do. We think that we're doing what we want, want to do we think we're doing what we desire to do we think we're doing what we love to do and the reality is is that in our thinking that we are free we are actually doing exactly what sin tells us to do so then there is a situation where we live in slavery and we live in brokenness there's also a situation which we're talk, we will talk about in a few minutes in which because of our sinfulness, because of our brokenness, we need to be set right. And so the idea here is is kind of um, kind of becomes a, a courtroom drama. The word justified, justified means to be made right. The word redemption is this idea that you were under condemnation and someone needed to, to get you back from that, that condemnation. The question becomes: what are we redeemed from? And I would suggest to you that our redemption is in this, is that God, in his, in, because he is good, looked at our sinfulness, saw us in our sinfulness, and realized that sinfulness has to have a, a punishment. And that there's a price to pay for sinfulness. And because of that price to pay, that we, all of us, were under God's judgment. But even though it was God's law that we violated, even though it was God's character that we sinned against, even though it was God's glory that we did not live up to, even though it was God's law that said that the wages of sin is death, God was not content to leave us in that situation. He was not content to leave us there. He was not content to leave us under condemnation. He was not content to leave us in brokenness. He was not content to leave us essentially on death row. If you think of yourself because of sin, sitting in solitary confinement on death row, awaiting that final moment when, when they strap you into the chair and they inject, uh, 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 or onto the table and they inject into your veins the, the, the lethal dose that will put you to death for the sin that you have committed. God was not content to leave us there on death row, but rather, God in his goodness has decided that he would justify freely, how? By his grace. Grace is is a word that we use. It's a word that we use regularly in our language. And it's a word that I do not think that we understand or, or fully grasp. Because the idea here then is that they, that being us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They, we, are justified freely, how? By God's grace. What does it mean that God gives his grace His grace? The, the fancy definition is unmerited favor. I, I don't know that that ever speaks directly to my soul when I, I'm like, oh, unmerited. But the idea is this, is that we deserved death row. Make no mistake, you and I sitting in solitary confinement waiting for them to come and strap us down onto the table and inject into our veins that which would kill us, that, which we, that is what we deserved. That is what we had earned. That is what we had merited. Merit means what have you earned. We had earned death row. We were born into earning death row. We were enemies of God. We were enemies of his character. We did not care a thing for his glory. We were slaves to sin. We were under condemnation. We were brought in, arrested, brought into to the prison cell of life, put on death row. We are sitting there awaiting our final judgment, that moment where they do put us to death. And we deserved all of it. So then, what is grace? Grace is the moment where God steps and says, you deserve to die. But I'm going to give you life. You and I do not deserve grace. We deserve punishment. We deserve destruction. We deserve annihilation. We deserve deserve to be strapped down to to the table because we committed the crime, because we are guilty, because we have no defense, because there's not a thing that we can say that would make what we have done all right. We were slaves to sin. We were criminal in our 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 behavior. But they are justified freely by his grace. What's that saying? It's saying God is going to come and make it right, and so if, if you 're viewing it as a drama, what is the drama of salvation? The drama of salvation is this is that you sitting accused and sitting condemned right not in, not in, in real time, but if you think in, in, in the grand scope of, 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 of what God does who exists outside of time ephesians one four is one of my favorite verses It says this: God sent him." Uh, 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 God chose us in him before the foundations of the world to be holy and blameless in in, in his sight. Ephesians 1.4. God chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. So the idea is is that God God knew, God saw, God who is all-knowing. He knew what was going to happen in history. And at some point in human history, God saw you sitting condemned. Saw you sitting on the edge of your bed waiting for the warden to come. God saw you sitting there waiting for them to call and say, it's time let's go down it's time to go to to the chair or it's time to go to the gurney it's time to put you to death God saw that and in his goodness he decided to, to do something and so though the warden was coming closer Though the warden was walking down the hall, though though, though the punishment for sin crept closer and closer and closer, and the warden got closer and closer to opening the door. When the door to your cell opened, and the warden was ready to say, Come, let us strap you to the gurney and put you down. When the door opened, it was not the warden, it was the king, and it was the judge, and it was the righteous one. And the one who stood at the door was not, not the warden, it was Jesus. And Jesus came. And instead of, uh, and said, I love you, I want you, and I'm going to make this right. We'll talk about how we did it in just a minute. For all of sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So what does that mean? So we, this is what I'm telling you: is if you in, in the, if you if you view how how uh, if you view God's actions through an anthropomorphic way, right? You were sitting in your cell waiting. The warden comes. When the warden opens the door, it's not the it's not the warden, but but it's Jesus. And Jesus says, "I am making all things right." One of the things I think we think in 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 our way of misthinking is that is that God can just declare it right. Without dealing with the issue that made it wrong, right? So there was sin. God's laws were violated. We we did, did transgress the glory of God. We do sin. We do mess up. And each one of those sins carried a death sentence. Everything that you've ever done that was sinful, that was wrong, it was a rebellion against God. And all of that made you worthy of the death sentence. It made you worthy of separation from God. It made you an enemy of God. Now, we sometimes think, well, but Jesus came in, and Jesus said, I'm not God's enemy anymore, and we think, that's great, and I agree, it is great, but the question is, how did he do it? It is not, Christianity is not a, 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 a system of magic, and it's not a sleight of hand with the change of words. It's not God sitting in heaven going, well, you know what, they deserve punishment, but I'm just not going to punish them. Just not going to do it. That's not what happened. Right? You need to understand that your salvation came about through a means. God saved you, but He did it through something, and here's how He did it They are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. How is the redemption in Christ Jesus? Here. God presented him as an atoning sacrifice in his blood, received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. Just this first part. God presented him as an atoning sacrifice in his blood. How does Jesus show up at the door? He shows up at the door of your cell. You're supposed to be taken, strapped down, and put to death. Jesus shows up. How does he rescue you. The way that he rescues you is he shows up in your cell and he says, you deserve death. You deserve this. You committed this crime and someone has to pay for this crime. And so Jesus doesn't break you out of jail. He doesn't sneak you out. He doesn't say the warden's coming. Let's get out of here. But rather, Jesus steps into the cell He says, I know that they're coming for you, but when the warden comes, they're taking me. And so you're sitting, waiting for the warden to come, waiting for him to come and put you to death, and Jesus steps into the cell and says, when the warden comes, they are taking me. The warden comes, and instead of taking you, they take Jesus. What do they do with Jesus? The, the uniform testimony of history and of Christianity is this, is that they take Jesus and they put him on trial. They find no error or no sin in him, but still they cry out, what? Crucify, crucify, crucify. They take Jesus. Jesus. They put him on a, a Roman cross after having beat him, after having uh, mocked him, after having stripped him, after having spent him. They take him, put his arms out, they stretch them, and they put them on a cross, and they put nails through his, through his hands. And then they put nails through his feet. And then they take the Roman cross, and they bring it up onto the mount called Golgotha, the place of the skull. They drop it into place, and they hang Jesus, tried and convicted as a criminal, though he committed no sin and no error. And they put him there, and they leave him, and he dies there. Here is how G- what Jesus did, is that the, if we went, go back one step, instead of using modern terms, imagine yourself on trial before Pilate, imagine yourself guilty. Imagine yourself deserving. Imagine yourself waiting to be beaten. Imagine yourself waiting to be whipped. Imagine yourself waiting to be nailed to a cross for the sins that you committed. Here comes. Jesus, and says, instead of you, I'm going to do this. I will go to this cross in the place for what you have done. And they put Jesus on the cross in the place of you. Jesus dies there by his blood. What then is the saying? If you remember, we preached through Exodus. When we preached through Exodus, we told you the story of the Lamb, that was the, the sacrifice, but the sacrificial lamb was a picture, right? The Passover lamb was a picture that there was coming a time when, when yearly sacrifices or regular sacrifices would not be necessary. But there was coming a pure and spotless lamb who was going to satisfy God's, uh, God's anger against sin finally and completely. That lamb's name was Jesus. We talked about uh, a while ago how on... On, on the 9th of Nisan, Jesus entered into Jerusalem through the Lamb's Gate to be selected as the, the perfect spotless lamb. We talked about how he's put on trial. We talked about how he was killed. He was put to death, but in his blood, he, the innocent one, put to death, made it so what? So that your sins were punished, so that your sins had the, the righteous wrath poured out against them, but it was not poured out on you, it was poured out on him. So that it says here, God presented him as an atoning sacrifice in his blood. Why are you saved or how are you able to be saved? You are saved through the blood of Jesus Christ. You are able to be saved because though he knew no sin, God made him to be sin for you so that you might become the righteousness of God. That's what 1 Corinthians says. God took him. And said, someone has to pay for these crimes. Someone has to pay for these sins. And the person who paid was Jesus. He presented him as an atoning sacrifice. That is a good English word. There is a... um in in the ESV i think it says he presented him as a propitiation we don't ever say propitiation enough in our culture anymore right like most of you haven't used that word recently around here during the week we've used it a lot this week it was a propitiation fest but propitiation does mean atonement he presents him as a propitiation and and if you look at what the what the what the the definition of a propitiation is right if you look it up, you are going to get something that's not going to help you if you're not familiar much with the words. Because if you look up what the word propitiation means, you're going to find out that it means an expatiator. So now we have two words, propitiation and expatiation, that only gets geeks like me excited, right? But here's what this means. So when it says that Jesus is an atoning sacrifice, he is a propitiation. It means he's the one who paid the price for our sin, He's the propitiation. God presented him as a propitiation. He presented Jesus as the payment for sin. Right? When he presented him as a propitiation, it's a definition also of who he is. So then what is Jesus as a propitiation? He's an expatiator. The word expatiation is a great word too because the word expatiation means, propitiation means God has, has made payment for your sins. Expatiation means this, and he has sent your sins far away from you. So we talk a lot. In, when, we, when we talk about, about how Jesus is the pure, spotless lamb that is put on the cross to pay the price of our sins. But we don't talk about as much uh, as about something called the scapegoat, which is also in Scripture. But the scapegoat is God's picture of expatiation. And so uh, if you've been around Crosswinds long enough, you remember probably uh, a message on this. Or you remember what we did after this message. But here, here's the idea. Expatiation... Is this idea that our sins are placed on something or someone else and they're carried off? far away from us so that our sins can't overcome us so that they can't control us so that we can't be under the weight of them so we can't be under the guilt of them so that we can live in freedom all of these sorts of things so not only is the punishment of our sin taken away but the guilt of our sin is taken away and the need to live anymore in sin is gone it talks about this in exodus right that what they did is they would they would take the sins of the people and they would place the sins of the people on a goat and then they would send the goat out into the desert to be gone, and the goat would never come back, and it was a symbol that God expatiates or takes away our sin. Years ago, when Crosswinds met on 48th Street, we wanted to preach the message on this, so I built a a goat out of cardboard. And uh, uh, I decorated the goat out of cardboard, and I encouraged the people at the end. I'm like, write down you know, your sins that, that, you're, that, <laughs> that you want God to just take away, the sins that, that, you know, write those down, and we're going to do this as simple. We'll put them inside the goat. There was a compartment. We'll put them inside the goat, and then we'll send the goat away. And so we did this, and we all went out in front in front of the building, and I had my buddy, Darrell drive my car, and we tied the goat uh, to the car, and, and then uh, we put all of those, those sins in there, and he drove away, and the interesting thing, about a cardboard goat on a, on a, on a long rope as it becomes like a kite. And so then the, the goat was flying all around and it was like going across lanes and almost hitting, hitting cars. And it was a pretty good example of what of what that what that is and what that would mean until uh, we didn't think it through that Daryl eventually had to come back. And so while the people were still standing out front a couple of minutes later, here came Daryl back with the goat, which makes it a bad example of expatiation because the goat's not supposed to come back, right? Here's, here's the point in In scripture though, to be a propitiation, to be a propitiation means to be an atoning sacrifice. But what is an atoning sacrifice? It's an expatiator. It's one who sends the sins away. So you're free. From the punishment of your sin, but you 're also free from the guilt of your sin, and frankly, I find a lot of people living in either one of these places. You might be living in, in a place where you have not truly given your sins over to Jesus and allowed him uh, allowed him to obliterate them through his through his sacrifice you haven 't allowed Jesus to take the punishment for your sins you 're still carrying your sins because the reason we do that a lot of times, I think, is that we fall in love with our sins, and we lie to ourselves, and we say, no, my sins, I really like this sin. We have pet sins, and so we hold on to them, and we keep them like, like a pet, rather like a person who, who thinks that he's, that he's keeping something adorable, and it turns into something else. We sort of keep our, we, we keep our sins like, like gremlins, right? If you ever saw the movie Gremlins, and if you didn't, I'm so sorry for you. Uh, but if you ever saw the movie Gremlins, gremlins were these adorable little creatures. They were so cute. They looked like uh, they looked like little t- teddy bears, maybe slightly smaller, bi-colored Ewoks. Um, and so, if you had the little uh, these little creatures, they were beautiful. But if if you got these creatures wet or fed them after midnight, they turned into monsters, right? And they turned into treacherous attacking monsters, and it's a whole movie about these adorable little things that turn into monsters. Sometimes I think we keep our sins like that. We're like, well, I like this sin. It's my pet. It's good. And so some of us keep our sin like it's a pet. It's not a pet. It's a gremlin. It's a monster. It wants to kill you. It wants to eat you. It wants to destroy you. It wants to ruin you. And we keep it like a pet in our home right next to us. We're like, oh, but I like this. And so we won't give our sin over to Jesus because we have convinced ourselves somehow that that sin is better than Jesus. It's not. It's a monster. And that monster will eventually eat you, destroy you, or kill you. And so some of us need to lean into this. He is a propitiation. He has paid the price of your sin. Give it to him. Stop laboring under the death that it will bring you. Give your sins to Jesus. Others of us Others of us have given our sins to Jesus, but we don't live in the reality that He who is our propitiation is also our expatiation. He has sent the sins away from us. It has two, imp- two, two things that it does. Number one, we do not need to live or labor under the guilt of our sins any longer they have been sent into the desert, never to return by the cross of Jesus Christ. They're gone. Scripture says our sins are as far from us as the east is from the west. Do that mentally. They never meet. So some of us continue to live under the guilt of our brokenness and the guilt of our sin, and it affects us, and it causes us, because we're under that guilt, we start to think, well, I don't measure up, and I don't have enough, and we don't live in the joy that we should have in Jesus Christ. The other thing, though, is this, is that if he is the expatiator, and he has sent our sins away into the desert, some of us continue to hunt the goat. We go and find the goat and we try and bring the sins back and we try and commit the sins and we try and live in those, those sins. You don't need to. To be in Jesus, it, our expatiation means you don't have to sin anymore. I realize, I realize that until we meet Jesus face to face, until the trump resounds and the Lord descends and his kingdom is established, that there will always be in our lives sin. We do wrong, but the reality is this. If we are in Jesus, we do not have to sin anymore we can become more like him the spirit is already at work in making us more like him we can do right we can act right we can leave sin behind he is our propitiation which means he's also our expatiator then i would note this says god presented him as an atoning sacrifice it does not say god presented him to be an atoning sacrifice Certainly he was to be an atoning sacrifice, but just a subtle point here I want you to note that God presented him as an atoning sacrifice so that you note this, that the gospel is wrapped up in Jesus. Jesus as propitiation is who he is. Jesus' as propitiation and expatiation is wrapped up in who he is, not in an action that he does, though the actions do do it. I want you to note this, that the gospel, the good news, is caught up in this, is that Jesus himself, is the gospel himself is the good news he himself is the propitiation he himself is the expatiation so that when we go after him when we follow after him when we enter into friendship with god we get jesus the gospel can never ever 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 be anything less than jesus it can never be anything less than the, than, than, the, than the Incarnate One who became flesh and lived amongst us, who though He lived amongst us, though He was tempted like us, never sinned. It can never be less than the One who never sinned who was put on trial as though He did. It can never be less than the One who was put on trial though and though He never sinned, He was convicted as though He did. The Gospel can never be less than the One who was put on the cross and crucified for sins that He never committed, but He was crucified because we did. It can never be less than than the one who hung on the cross and gave up the, the spirit and died and said, It is finished. Because when he says it is finished, our sin is. This is what I'm telling you the gospel cannot be anything less than Christ put on a cross, crucified, died. Buried, resurrected, and overcoming our sin. What is Christianity about? It's about the Christ. Who is the Christ? It is Jesus. What is your hope? It is him. What is the good news? The good news is that Jesus loves you so much, he died so that you could know him so you could experience him, so you could walk with him, so you could talk with him, so that you could be transformed by him, so that you might be like him, so that you might be adopted into the family of his father by actions undertaken by him. Jesus is at the heart of the gospel. They are justified freely by his grace through redemption that is in christ jesus god presented him as an atoning sacrifice in his blood received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint god passed over sins previously committed i just want to talk about that verse really quickly and this is just a a technical point but sometimes people ask and this is a good question well what about the people in the old testament what about the people in the old testament um I was, I was inadvertently taught when I was very little by people who sort of were confused, but they said, well, people in the Old Testament were saved by works, but people in the New Testament were saved by grace. That's, that's heresy. That's broken, and it's not true, right? And the reason why is because it's hard to grapple with, well, those people lived before Jesus. What about them? How were they saved? Well, the answer's right here. God, in his righteousness, because he was good... Showed restraint and didn't punish the sins of the people before Christ previously committed. Now, this does not mean that he didn't punish any sins. It means he didn't punish the sins of those people who were followers of Yahweh, who, 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 who knew Yahweh before, the people who knew Yahweh before Jesus came, they were saved by looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. And God in his goodness said, they believed the promises that I'm coming, sending the Messiah, and because of that, I'm going to have forbearance. I'm not going to punish their sins because Jesus is going to come in history, and he's going to die and make atonement. And propitiation, expiation, even for their sins. So, so people are saved in all time through the same thing. Jesus, we're saved through the same gospel, that God sent his son to die on the cross for our sins, to take the punishment of the sins upon him. All people in all time, from from Abraham to to us, are saved in the same way. The difference is we get to live in the fullness of the revelation. We get to know Jesus uh, on the personal level in our living. We get to point to and say the Messiah has come. The people before that, they had the promises and the covenants, and they put their faith in the promises and the covenants, and the promise that one day a Messiah would come. And because of that faith, it was counted to them as righteousness and God rescued them. Because of because of them? No, because of what Jesus would do. That's what, what this is saying. Uh, because in re- his restraint, God passed over sins previously committed. Verse 26, God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous, the one who has faith in Jesus. And uh, i like another another translation that says, so that he might be both just and justifier. It's kind of the same same words, the same idea. So God is both just and justifier. It means this, is that God is a God of justice. But even then, he, he so justice is the concern that things are right in the world, right? When things are, are wrong, when things are done that, that are terrible, we want justice. So with if, if, uh, if someone came in and there was, there was a grand scale uh, shooting uh, in the community, we would want the person who did that to be brought to justice. We wouldn't want them just freely walking the street. When damaging things happen to community, we want that person brought to justice. God has to be just, right? So you go, well, why can't God just say, I won't punish their sins? Why'd God have to kill Jesus? Why didn't he just go, well, I'll just forgive them all because I'm a good guy. The problem is, is that none of us wants to live in a society like that. Imagine if our court system went, you know what, we're just going to be nice, and so everybody who's committed any any crimes, we're just going to forgive them all. Nobody has to go to jail. Nobody has to do any time. Ever. That would be lawlessness. And it would be anarchy, and we wouldn't want to live in that society because we innately know that when a person commits a crime, for instance, murder, or when a person commits a, a, a crime, like abusing a child, we we innately know that they deserve some sort of punishment, and we know that that is better for the fabric of society. Imagine God ruling the world and going, you know what? I'm just not going to punish anybody for anything. I'm just going to let everybody go. That's not who God is. He has to be just. To be righteous means he has to be one of justice. And so in the world, punishment is deserved. God can't just go, hey, look, all of you guys, I know you really mess up and I know you do wrong, but we're just going to be a big happy family and do whatever you want. Because if that happened, it would be total and complete anarchy. And so we wouldn't want that from our, our, our politicians. We wouldn't want that from our police forces. And if you really understand, you don't want that from your God. We need justice. So the word righteous would be uh, so that he would be righteous, so that he would be both just. He's just. And so sin had to be punished. But he's also justifier. And that's what we've talked about throughout this whole thing. That God, who is just, was justifier. He has, the, 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 his will is that all things be righteous, that all things be just. And when he looks at you, he sees you, and when he sees me, and he goes, they're not right. So he has two choices. He can punish us. He can condemn us or he can rescue us. And so God, in his goodness, chose to justify us. And the way he did that is by sending Jesus to pay the punishment of the sin that we have committed, so that the sins are not unpunished. Jesus is punished for the sins. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous, the one who has faith in Jesus. So, I'll just end with this. If you walk out, here's what I want want you to hear. Number one, you're a sinner, right? And if you're a sinner who walks with Jesus, I don't want you to first think of yourself as a sinner. I want to think of yourself as a redeemed saint. But I'm talking to people, uh, all of us in, in our actions are sinners. Some of you... And some of us have not yet met Jesus, and we've not yet given over to Jesus our sinfulness. So if that's you, I want you to hear this, that, that God is just. And because he is just, someone is going to pay the price for the sin you have committed. Whether that sin was, was snapping at your mom when you were five, or robbing a bank yesterday, someone is going to pay for the sin that you have committed. Someone is going to pay for that. And so your choice, if you're here and you've not yet met Jesus and you've not decided to walk with him, or if you, even if you're like looking at yourself going, I, I thought, I, I don't know where I am, as is, is you're examining yourself, this is the reality. If you have not yet met Jesus, you're going to pay for those sins. The payment for those sins is eternal separation from God in eternal punishment. We affirm what the church has always affirmed, that that though God is loving, though God is real, though God is, 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 is glorious, part of his glory is to punish wrongdoers who will not repent of their wrongdoing. And so eternal punishment is the reality for those who reject the good news. Right? But if you're here this morning and you're like, I I want that Jesus, the good news is this. He came to rescue you. And he came to rescue me. He's a good God. He is both our propitiation and our expatiation. He takes away the punishment for our sins and the guilt of our sins so that we can live righteously in him. So if you're here and you don't know him, I'm begging you, do not go on continuing to pay a debt that you do not have to pay. Jesus has come to take that debt for you. Now, for if you're here and you know Jesus, I want to remind you that that a lot of us are, are people, we understand, uh, we understand that God has come to take away the punishment for our sins, but we don't always understand that he's come to take away the guilt of our sins. And so if you're living in a place where you're like, oh, I live under the guilt of that, I live under that all the time, I live under the guilt of my past, I live under that struggle... I want to encourage you, he's come when he made the, the sacrifice for your sins, he took away not only their punishment, but their guilt. And thirdly, I want to remind you that if he's taken away the punishment and the guilt, that we who follow him do not have to continue to walk in sin, but rather we can, we can, we can live righteous lives because his righteousness has been granted to us. We can live in light of the Spirit. We can become more like him. And then I want to just declare you uh, say to you this last thing as the good news. You've been, if you are in Christ Jesus and you know him, you've been declared righteous by him. So how you view yourself and how I view myself and how we view ourselves when we get up in the morning and we have anger at ourselves and we have depression and we have trouble believing that it's possible that God could love us because of who we are and what we've done, right? We're like, well, I get that God loves those other people because of that, but they don't understand how bad I am and God couldn't possibly love someone like me. I want you to hear this. This verse says, That you have been declared righteous if you have faith in Jesus. So that the way God views you when he looks at you is he sees Jesus. And I would defy you theologically to make any argument that the Father does not love the Son, the second person of the Trinity. He loves him deeply. So when God looks at you, he is loving you through the lens of Jesus. And so I want you to hear that you have been declared righteous so that if you are like me, and you have days where you're like, I can't believe that God would really love me. I believe that, that he came. I believe that he died. I believe that he's resurrected. I believe the Bible. What I have trouble with is believing how could he love me. The answer is this. He loves you because Jesus has died for you. He, he sent Jesus to die because he loves you, but his love is fully expressed in that action, and because of that action, when he looks at you, he doesn't even see you like you see you. He's not viewing you through the lens of your sinfulness. He's not viewing you through the lens of your brokenness. He's not viewing you through the lens of your low self-esteem. He's not viewing you from the lens of any of that. He is viewing you through the lens of who Jesus is. And if God looks at you and sees you through the lens of Jesus, then he loves you as a righteous child. That changes how we live day to day. Next week we'll go into uh, some further implications of, of the good news. But we believe this, it changes everything. And my prayer for you this morning is that you will let the good news of the gospel wash over you. Those verses are so beautiful, it's almost like, why do we stand up here and preach them? Why not just read, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him as an atoning sacrifice in his blood, received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his restraint, God pressed over the sins previously committed. God presented us to him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in him. If nothing I said made sense, please go home and read those verses. It's good news. It's really good news. Pray with me.